Welcome to Silmarillion Stories. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle Earth. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our podcast for Of the Flight of the Noldor, the tenth portion of the Silmarillion. For this episode, we've got a special guest with us today, Marilyn R. Pukila. Marilyn has been a regular contributor to many of our shows, including this one and our coverage of the Earthsea Cycle by Ursula K. Le Guin. You can find a link to Marilyn's website in the show notes below. In this episode, we are going to be discussing the theft of the Silmarils, the Oath of Feanor, and the first kinslaying of elves. And definitely send us feedback. We save it up between episodes. Send us an email to lotr at thelorehounds.com or visit us at our website where we've got a contact form or you can use the nifty voicemail feature. We've got a Discord server, link also in the show notes, and we've got a great community with a dedicated Tolkien channel and channels for all the other shows that we're covering. You can stick around at the end of the podcast if you want to hear programming notes about the rest of our coverage for October and November. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to patreon.com slash the lorehounds. Ad revenues are fickle and Patreon is really the best way to help us grow the podcast. For as little as $3 a month, subscribers get ad-free podcasts, early access to everything. We've got special live watch events and other exclusive content just for subscribers. David, it's time to bring in the one, the only, <laughs> the oxen-mooted Marilyn yes. Arpukila. Yes. Marilyn, how you doing? Good evening, gentlemen. I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you? I'm swell because I get to talk to you about nerdy stuff all night. I mean. <laughs> what could be better? What could be better? Who, who knew we were so lucky? Indeed. Now, Marilyn, you have mooted recently. I have. Uh, I guess it's not that recent anymore, but we, we put off recording this podcast. So uh, it was recent when we planned to do this podcast. You went to Oxenmoot and you had a report for us to give. I know we mentioned it on our interview with Bear McCreary. That'll be out Oh, cool! before this, actually. So you can go listen to it now. We dropped um, your name to Bear. So oh, did, did you? Oh, yes. we did. Bear was thrilled that you enjoyed his speech because I guess he was intimidated by the academia of the moot. Uh, and he was nervous to to talk to a bunch of academics. He's like, that's not really my world. And Bear um, McCreary does not seem like a man who has a nervous disposition. No. No, I'm no. astounded. Is, I'm gobsmacked. Yeah. He, he was is, so happy. I mean, a man, a man who commands, you know, thousands in an orchestra. Um, with his, you know, creative vision, whatever. Uh, but he's he did say he was like a little nervous and uh, and it's hard when you're presenting from a Zoom thing because mm -hmm. you don't have that immediate audience feedback or yes. even right. on a yes. Zoom one to one. Right. So, uh, well, but he was he was he was pleased to hear that he was well received. So, oh, I'm so glad. No, I I don't know what it is. Um, you know, academics tie their shoelaces and eat three meals a day when they're fortunate and <laughs> all, all the other just things. like anybody else. But uh, exactly, I go. I suppose some of them try to develop a reputation of that sort, but. Most of us don't have time for that. We're too busy enjoying ourselves and each other and, and all the people who love Tolkien. So, Can you um, maybe provide a little context for what Oxenmoot is when it happens? You know, what's, what's the upshot of it? What, what is its purpose or what's the, what's the whole deal for it? Sure thing. Introducing the Oxenmoot Report. <laughs> 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 what did you scrounge up that? You <laughs> gotta keep your eyes on John. He's gonna slip. Uh, he's a trickster. He's got a little, trickster. He's got a little it? Loki in him. Absolutely, he does. Oxenmoot means 
moot, of course, like ant moot, a gathering. And Oxen is derived from an old version of the name for Oxford. So it literally okay. means gathering at Oxford. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and this was the 50th anniversary. It is oh, the cool. annual gathering of the Tolkien Society, the international society that's located in the UK. Okay. And so the Which 50- is not that that doesn't represent the Tolkien estate. This is the like friends of Tolkien kind of thing. Absolutely. The mm-hmm. Tolkien Society is um, a charitable organization and its intention is educational. Okay. So they a lot of their projects center around introducing Tolkien to the world, um, providing everything from book lists to regular symposia and lecture series and so forth. The thing about Oxenmoot is it is a gathering of multiple types of people. Okay. So we were 350 strong in person, and then there were additional couple hundred uh, attending online. So it was a major gathering literally from around the world. Mm. And so one of the major challenges is how do you figure out a schedule for people who are representing all the time zones, right? Right. Um, And they do a fantastic job. Um, They were entirely hybrid during COVID and since then, excuse me, entirely online in COVID, the first year of COVID in 2020. And then since then, they've been doing hybrid type gatherings. So there are papers, um, academic and fan. And I mean, I don't, I don't like these distinctions, but um, you know, let's just say out of a very wide range Mm -hmm. um, on all topics under the sun. Right. I mean, you could go, it depends on like the level of academic rigor. Are you citing your sources and are you providing an extensive bibliography or are you writing a, you know, um, a personal opinion piece, if you will, sort of, I suppose that's the, a level of distinction, right? Well, they're also independent academics. I think the bottom line is, um, you know, if you are a credentialed academic kind of thing, then that's how you're making your living. Mm-hmm. But there are, or if you have a, a sponsoring uh, institution that you you work for, or yes, you write for, yes. So. Although there are brilliant independent academics who of do course. not have a sponsoring institution who are every bit as uh, quality, sure, of course, as any of the other ones who are actually teaching and researching within an institution. Yeah. So, being the spouse of somebody who's writing a PhD right now, it's, I can tell you the level of academic rigor. For that versus say like a, you know, piece of, you know, business corporate, you know, annual report or something like that is entirely different sort of qualitatively. Definitely. So there were some invited guest speakers, including Bear McCreary, which was terribly exciting. They, they kind of hyped that for a while before they revealed it just before the, uh, we all gathered. So people were very excited for that. Um, Brian Sibley, who was involved with a number of different projects over the years, a lot of people maintain that his adaptation of Lord of the Rings is the best that has ever been. Okay. Whether visual or strictly, you know, um, audio. And the, the thing about it is it's a multiple event. So you have the papers, you have the, the invited speakers, but then you just have getting together with your friends who you haven't seen for a year. Or you have a Prancing Pony podcast community coming together full strength and going around to pubs and enjoying each other's company tremendously and having dinner together. I finally got to meet in person a bunch of people who I've only known via Zoom for the past three years or so. Um, The Signum University, the online university that Corey Olson started, had a very strong representative group as well. But they also do, uh, there was a 
fabulously funny parody of the simple Silmarillion, which involved uh, the Silmarils represented by the the bottom ends of, of three beer cans held together. Um, <laughs> Luthien, um, you know, released from bondage. Um, yes, they went there, <laughs> not distastefully, <laughs> but still they, they used that particular pun. Um, there's um, costume displays. There's the first night is the pub quiz, and that is famous for its level of difficulty. Uh, so it really is a combination of, of different kinds of events, and you can partake in as many or as few as you want. For me, one of the biggest, well, I'll back up a bit and say, yes, I did present a paper, and it was on the literary sources for Boromir's Lament. And that was exciting and an honor, and it was well-received um, and got me some notice from a couple of places. I haven't actually had them contact me back yet to give them talks or appear on their podcast, but, you know, stuff will happen. Did you introduce yourself as a co-host of the Earth Sea Cycle podcast? <laughs> shameless, I, I mentioned it. Shameless. I, no, I mentioned it in, in my description. You know, we each read oh, okay. a little plug for oh, ourselves. Cool. So, yes, oh, cool. I did. I did. Well, how could I not? Come on, guys. Let's be serious here. <laughs> You're the only ones who call me your favorite Tolkien scholar. I, you know, I had to mention that. Yeah. Although I don't know, if, I don't know if I did use those exact words. Anyway, we we told Bear McCreary our favorite Tolkien scholar. I, so so even he knows now. Golly, maybe I'll meet him someday. <laughs> that would be wonderful. He is a super nerd. He, he is. Would, he oh, totally man. is. Totally. Yeah. You talk to him and you're like, this guy, this guy gets it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. No, I've read his blog posts and any listeners, if you haven't read his blog posts and you're interested in this kind of thing, definitely check them out. Yeah. He's so generous with his time and describing yeah, his process yeah. and so on. One of the big features though is Oxford. Oxford is a place unlike any other. And I had been there a couple of times before in my life, but I was there with my partner. He'd never been before. And we had wonderful, wonderful walks around, visiting different places. I had the privilege of doing a bit of research in the Bodleian Library before giving my paper because it was relevant to some of the things I was saying. We walked on Addison Walk, which is the famous um, pathway around a deer forest and uh, the River Cherwell and so forth, where Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and another inkling, and I always get the wrong one, so I'm not going to say which one. Um, walked and talked until two in the morning, and this is what Lewis pointed to as a very important conversion moment for him mm. to return to Christianity. And uh, I've I've been there before, but it just is so moving every time I see it. And this time I was, you know, with my best beloved. So what could be better? Yeah. Um. So that was a major pull, and. Then we also extended on beyond after Ox. Oh, I must mention the last day for many people, the highlight of the whole weekend. We go in buses to the Wolvercote Cemetery, which was the Catholic cemetery at the time when, when Edith was buried and then Tolkien. And we visit their joint grave and um, the chair of the Tolkien Society does a reading and then wreaths are laid representing all of the different international Tolkien societies that have been present there. Uh, there was a Finnish Tolkien society, Gül, and uh, <laughs> a couple other nations represented. And then there's a man who for years has sung from memory Galadriel's Namarie song, oh. 
to the music that Donald Swan wrote for it and that Tolkien gave such strong approval to. Cool. So it's very moving. And you can see the graves of uh, his children, John and Priscilla, um, Humphrey Carpenter, who was the first and I think the best biographer of Tolkien is also buried not too far away from there. So that's, it's a very moving way to end. And then Bob and I went on to Birmingham, which is Tolkien's childhood home. And just everywhere you walk, you know, there's a blue plaque and, you know, Tolkien lived here for a year. Well, not quite the, I exaggerate for effect, but it was just astonishing to actually be there to visit the oratory where the fathers who were his family after his mother died were to actually go to Sarah hole and see the old mill where the two millers would frighten the boys. And so many moments of serendipity, my favorite one, we were walking back from Sarah hole up towards the bus stop where we had to catch the bus to get back into where we were staying. And I had determined from a guidebook that, there was an actual house that he and the, the house that he and his mother and his brother first lived in when they were in wow. Sarahol. Very cool. Which was really remarkable. So we we stood there on the sidewalk. <clears throat> it hadn't been altered very much at all. Took pictures and so forth. And then as we turned to go, there's a woman walking towards us, and it looks like she'd been out, you know, picking up trash because she had one of those gripper things in a bag and so forth. Right. So we said, hello, how are you? And I said, I suppose you're accustomed to people taking photos of this place all the time because it was Tolkien's child at home. And she said, I know. I live there now. <gasps> no. Would you like to see the back garden? No. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's nice. It's not like the the uh, Breaking Bad house where they're like getting restraining orders. <laughs> well, I can imagine <laughs> they might have to. Yeah. 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 I think the Brits yeah. are a little more polite about that sort of thing. But anyway, I mean, she didn't let us in the house, nor would I have expected her to. Yeah. Besides, I'm sure it's been changed several times since they were living sure. there. But just to get a sense and feel for how big the plot was, we walked through mostly bog where they went gathering. I mean, it was it was really very, very special. So, very cool. Yeah, it was a great time. Were there any uh, standout uh, papers delivered that really caught your attention or anything that um, any new lights shed on on the uh, works of Tolkien? or Well, one of the keynote speakers gave a terrific paper about Tolkien and the moon. Okay. She's the an moon. astronomer. She loves the way he includes accurate descriptions of astronomical phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And this was what drew her in in the first place. So, yeah, that was, that was uh, a really delightful one. Very um, cool. There was a lovely paper on the folks here are queerer talking about um, queerness and how it was or wasn't represented. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, basically focusing on the, the forming of a community of people who didn't necessarily match the sort of normative standards mm -hmm. of their community. Mm -hmm. um, a fellowship, if you will. A fellowship, if you will, precisely. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed Brian Sibley's talk. He talked about uh, putting together his most recent book on uh, Numenor. He mm -hmm. pulled every single excerpt of every single text that described Numenor and put it in chronological order with very cool. glorious illustrations by John Howe. Uh, it's been sitting on my to-read pile for far too long. I keep doing this podcasting stuff. I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. My list keeps getting longer, too. It's hard to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. So 
and then there were all the ones that were going on overnight, you know, when I was trying to catch up on my sleep. Mm. Um, for those who were registered, the recordings will gradually be made available so you can see some of the recordings of the talks that you weren't able to attend. Um, it was hot. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much the, the weekend in Oxford. I mean, the week in Oxford, but then the following week in Birmingham, it got into the 80s for crying out wow. loud. This in is England. England in early September. What is going <laughs> that's, on that's here? That's not normal. Yeah. No, definitely not normal. <laughs> definitely not weird. normal. Things are weird. Will you would be, not approve. Will you be attending next year or was this sort of a, you know, you've fulfilled your, your pilgrimage requirement <laughs> and uh, you can complete that part of your faith, faith journey. Or well, if I do attend it, I think it'll be um, by a virtually. zoom this time virtually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's expensive, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Well, it all adds up with the hotels and the flights. It all adds and, up. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And in the end, a lot of the gathering I wasn't able to go to because it was after everything else, right? Mm-hmm. So people are heading off to the pub at 11 o'clock, and I'm heading to my bed at 11 o'clock. <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> exactly. You know. but having, it's England, for goodness exactly. sakes. you got to head David, down to the David, I sent a, a business pint. trip next year, and I'm just <laughs> There we go. <laughs> you write it off. But breakfast. There you go. Breakfast yeah, it's basically is, free if you write it off. You ever, you ever watch Just Creek when he's like, he's like, what, what did you do with this? Oh, it's a business expense. I, I write it off. The government pays for it. He's like. What do you think a write-off is? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But to be able to have breakfast with some, you know, one of the, the friends from the the year-long um, issues of Middle Earth class that I'm taking um, walked up to us one morning and said, "Okay, you're on my schedule to have lunch with you." <laughs> you know, so <laughs> just being able to see people and talk with them and. Um, right. I think that's what a lot of people enjoy the most. And seeing the international representation, you know, mm-hmm. the, oh, I mustn't forget the very, very beginning, the very first night, you know, after jet lag and working with Bodley and whatever, opened with this fabulous banquet. And I do mean banquet, a five course wow. meal with port afterwards for toast. Oh, lovely. I mean, it was in Exeter Dining Hall, which was Tolkien's undergraduate dining hall. Wow. Before the meal, we were able to go to the Exeter Chapel and see the statue, the uh, bust that Tolkien's daughter in law, Faith Tolkien, Christopher's wife, had made of him and then given to um, Exeter College, which is not normally available to be seen by the public. So that was a Mm. special treat. Fun. And the food was wonderful. And again, conversations with people. And yeah, I mean, we were, we were punch drunk at this point for lack of sleep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it didn't matter. Yeah. And you know, that was that was Bob's introduction to, to Oxford. So <laughs> what, <laughs> what could possibly be better? If somebody were interested in uh Oxenmoot and the Tolkien Society, I'm sure there's a website, Tolkiensociety.org. Absolutely. Seems like a log- logical thing. And what what are these things, these uh uh smile? Smile. S M I L. Yes, sorry. That's okay. Terrible pronunciation. One one of Tolkien's own words. Okay. The smiles are the local Tolkien society groups. Okay. Anybody can form a smile if they want to. The first thing to do is to go online at the Tolkien Society website and see if there already is one in your area. Mm-hmm. And if not, they have suggestions and, and so forth on how to proceed to make an official mm-hmm. smile. Okay. And they can be uh, hybrid as well. Although, of course, the greatest fun is if you can gather in person. And, right, right. Some of them is, are quite elaborate in their programming and, and um, all that kind of thing. So it's fun. Are you a member of a Smile in the? 
not at this point. You know, I've okay. I've got my PPP connections. I've got you guys. I've, I've no, already got my Tolkienness <laughs> in my life. <laughs> we're plenty we're an unofficial of. smile, right? And we smile all the time. Very cool. There you go. One of us there had to go. do it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you gotta. <laughs> That's great. So it sounds like it was a fun trip and uh, especially for Bob to be able to enjoy, uh, see some of your world and you get to share yeah. that with him. That's really special. Well, I'll be honest, he got up earlier than I did. So he certainly heard more papers than I did. So you oh, should okay. probably ask him about the papers. And so on. There you go. <laughs> How are the PPP folks? Great. Everybody's well. Wonderful. Yeah. Good. Well, some of them are having, you know, health issues and whatnot, but on the whole. Life, life continues. Know, yeah. Life continues. Right. Yep. continues and cool. just lovely to have somebody run up and give you a hug. Yes. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Even yeah. if you don't have a yeah. chance to spend any more time with them, just, just that one thing. Oh, and there's this convention in um, English uh, colleges and universities called the porters. And I'm here to tell you every major organizational building type structure like this should have a porter. The porters solve problems. Mm. They have an office right by the gate um, everything from where do I find stamps to can you call me a taxi to my sink is overflowing to anything. All you have to do is call the porter's lodge or go to the porter and say, can you help me with fill in the blank? And they're knowledgeable and they're kind. They're helpful. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful institution. <laughs> we could use some of that here, I think. Very cool. Yeah. Great. That, Great. That gives us the Oxen Moot Report. Thank you, Marilyn, for uh, for all your all your insights into it. I, I hope to one day go to an Oxen Moot, to one day moot. I think but everybody I don't know should if I qualify at some point. right now. Well, and you know, there's plenty of moots in, in this country too. You know, PPP is probably gonna have a moot next year. Yeah. I don't know where or when exactly yet, but you know, keep an eye out for that. Maybe one day we'll have a lore moot. And Signum we'll is Signum University throws moots all over the country. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cool. And again, they can be virtual. They can be in person. Very well, cool. Keep us, keep us informed as we uh, progress uh, throughout the years. If there's anything interesting that comes up with any of these moots, then yeah, you know, that art that Lorehound listeners would, you know, like to know about. Definitely. Sure. And listeners write in if there's a particular Tolkien aspect that you'd be interested in, in following because the coverage is wide and varied. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Especially with the, just the growth in the Tolkien, you know, not only what was there, but as we've grown from the movies and the te television shows, uh, I, I wonder how many more people have, you know, entered into the world of, of Tolkien because of those things. And the video games and the Magic and the, the Gathering cards and all yes. of those things will be covered. You know, again, it was a question of, I cannot do all the things I want to do. I could have right. finally gone right. and sat in on a Magic the Gathering card game, but <laughs> I just, I couldn't do it, you know? Right. <laughs> One day I'll teach you to play Marilyn. Oh, I, I we'll look forward fun. to it. Well, I remember the, <clears throat> and I'll build I'll you a Sauron deck. I'll turn the question go. around and say, when are we going to have a Lorehounds moot? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Someday. 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 We gotta, we've got to be We've got to be a bit larger because it's sort of a percentage thing sure. of those who have scheduling availability and, sure. and mm -hmm. whatnot. Sure. But uh, I remember the first time I went to the Louvre and I walked in, I was there about 45 minutes and I was like, okay, I got to go. <laughs> this is just way too much. It's so awesome. It's like my I, senses are on fire. I have to go, you know, calm down. <laughs> so I, had, I can imagine that a moot is not dissimilar. I had exactly the same experience the first time I walked into the Louvre. So I understand yeah. exactly what you're saying. And yes, yeah. it is a little bit like that. 
yeah, just so many great jolly fellows running around the uh, the moot. And actually, that was another thing that they did that I really liked. There was somebody who paid attention to accessibility issues mm-hmm. and things like, you know, this room in this building is identified as a quiet room. Mm-hmm. So if you were ever mm-hmm. feeling overwhelmed, this is where you go. Nice. They had vendors. They had um, crafting. Um, I mean, I'm forgetting half of the stuff they had because there was just so much. (laughs) Right. Huge deal. Huge deal. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for the report. My pleasure. Thanks for the interest. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we get back, we will discuss the actual reading. We're back. All right. So we've read the chapter of the Flight of the Noldor, which is a massive behemoth of a chapter for the early Silmarillion. You know, I know we were talking about it was getting easier to read for a while. This is (laughs) I I, I think I think that this chapter is a is a great read. It's just long. You know, it's not it's still not um, it's not the bigots anymore. We're still we're on an adventure now. Um, which is great. It's just kind of size, sizable it's, compared to the other surrounding chapters. It's almost three. You could break it up into into sub chapters, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's so much packed into it. It just rolls from one topic to the next. Right, right. Now, I know David has to leave us in a few minutes, but David, do you want to give some general impressions on the chapter before you head out? I think you pretty much summed it up. The it was dense. It was packed. It was adventure filled. There was oath sworn. There were evil monsters. There was, you know, ice chasms. Uh, I think when you think that you're going to read a Tolkien adventure, that this is what you're kind of more expecting than a lot of, of what comes before. So it really feels mm-hmm. like, ah, we've arrived now. Like there's been a lot of setup and a lot of, um, context being given, and then this feels like finally there are some stakes have been laid down. There's an inciting incident. There's um, um, the bad guys turning on each other. Okay, mm-hmm. we've stolen the loot. Okay, we're we're getting away with it. This is cool. Hey, I want my cut too. Uh, right? Yeah, right. maybe. Okay, here's a little bit. Well, give me the rest. Of, right? There's all of the 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 bad guys falling in on each other. There, I mean the the whole thing of you know of blood oaths being sworn and and kin slaying. You know this is it, it's it's got it all. It's it's a really uh, it's a really cracking episode or chapter, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, the most infamous of the deeds of the Noldor. I would say, yeah, for sure, the Absolutely. most infamous. The this is the stage setting. For the rest of the of the book, right? right? This is right. this is how we get the rest of the book. Right. This is where the mapping of the Noldor's fate happens. It's right. basically laid out in words of one syllable, well, multiple syllables, by Mandos. Right. right. Mm. Mandos is like, yeah, um, I, I love Mandos. He's kind of just sitting off to the side, like, mm, I wouldn't <laughs> do that, but it's just gonna happen. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. I thought the uh, from the show perspective of Rings of Power, right? They don't have they have 
restrictions on, uh, or ha- they have only have license to certain uh, aspects of things. And so I thought it was really interesting to listen to uh, Feanor on uh, the pursuit. Mm-hmm. And it really felt like they transferred that to Gladriel in the Rings of Power and like having her little troop and they're off, you know, and hunting and we're not going to let this guy, we're not going to rest until it's done. So it's interesting to see how uh, Payne and uh, uh, McKay. McKay, you know, are, are trying to sort of synthesize and take some inspiration and, you mm-hmm. know, maybe move some things around, uh, to, you know, so that we get a feeling of some of the stuff that they can't legally access. They're definitely adding in uh, uh, Galadriel's creepy uncle factor Mm -hmm. into her. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) In in the text, he asks her three times for one of her hairs, and she's so put off by him, she refuses. Right. And some say that it was her hair that inspired him to start thinking about another way of um, encasing the light from the two trees because it was said that her hair looked like the light of the two trees had blended right. and, and formed this amazing mm. tresses. So it was that the famous line from the unfinished tales is they were unfriends forever. So <laughs> Tolkien yeah. anticipated Facebook by I love know, it. how many decades? <laughs> You've been unfriended. And, um, you know, I, I love that. It, it's kind of flipped on its head in Rings of Power because here we have an explicit statement. Galadriel did not take the oath. She That's was right. there. Right. She was power hungry. You know, she wanted to have a realm of her own. But she even she young, you know, a young. It sounds like she's basically a young adult, right? She's a young adult. She's really yeah. hot headed. She wants to rule a land of her own. She wants to be independent. She wants to rebel against the authority figures. But even she's like, yeah, I don't know about going as far as this oath here, Feanor. That yeah. seems like a bridge too far. Um, and Vanor and his sons really write their futures here. Right. Yeah. And it's. I think it's important to remember because some people kind of say, oh, well, he forced his sons. And I'm like, no. The sons freely, they leapt up and took the oath right after right. him. There was right. no coercion. Now, he does later on make it more explicit, but I don't want to spoil. So I will mm-hmm. say no more for now. I think yeah. The- the the last kind of thought I wanted to maybe leave on was this question of oaths. And when you know you make these big proclamations and you and you swear and and you you stake your 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 person it's 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 interesting because it's this question of your word and your word is that's all you have. That's all we really have as as people. Oh, I'm going to show up tomorrow at four. Well, you know, you didn't show up at four. You never showed up. You never show up on time anyway, right? So that starts to lead to how do we relate to each other? Are we people who keep our words? Are we people who um, who um, I, I give my word to you, but am I giving my word to myself? Am I honoring my word like myself? So there's this whole idea of of oaths and the power of oaths. And when you bring people together and they all swear an oath together and, you know, the kind of drama and the dramatic tension an author can juice out of that is really interesting. So that was the other part of this um, chapter that really got me was, you know, everybody swearing, you know, on upon their oath that they will do X, Y, or Z. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and the fact that you are calling upon 
the gods to witness, Mm -hmm. I think is what makes an oath an oath. People Mm -hmm. take vows a lot. Vows, oaths, yeah. But I think they're two different things. The Mm -hmm. vow is more to yourself or maybe to one other person, like, you know, wedding vows, for example. Mm -hmm. Or a vow of silence or a vow of chastity or poverty. Yeah. Faramir says when he's talking with Frodo and after the reveal of the ring and so forth, he said, you know, I've already said to you, even if I found it lying by the roadside, I would not take it before I knew what it was, but I would hold those words as a vow. Mm. That's how important it is to him Mm -hmm. to keep his word that his, his self integrity rests in this. Whereas it's interesting from a Quaker perspective, the existence of oaths implies lies. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, otherwise, course. you know, yes. if, if you then are known you as a person for a word, you know, so right. Quakers won't even take oaths. Mm. They affirm instead, because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, I'm saying, you know, the rest of the time you can't trust me. Well, you know, like Faramir in a way, your word isn't just your bond. It's, it's mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I say exactly. Your word is yourself. And, yeah. and your contem- contemporary um, pagan practices. Mm-hmm. They talk about your magic is only as good as your word mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. your magic comes from your words, from what you say and state. And so if you don't act on those, mm-hmm. you don't fulfill them as it were. If you don't honor them or affirm them or whatever. Then that. you're going to have pretty wishy-washy weak magic because right. you yourself apparently are fairly wishy-washy. And you're going to, yeah, and you're, uh, if you're not a practitioner, you're going to have wishy washy relationships and people are not going to be able to depend on you or they're going to exactly. know you in a way that maybe you don't have an, an opinion of yourself. That, that's not what you'd want from your relationships. So, and yet at the same time, you know, you look through the whole corpus of Tolkien's literature, I don't think he thinks oaths are a very good idea. <laughs> no, I mean Elrond shows that he's still, re- you know, recovering from the oaths of the Noldor. Exactly, he wasn't even alive for the oaths of the Noldor. So, but he sure uh, was alive for their consequence. He sure which, was, yeah. Which is really that's what I was saying before about the dramatic tension that you can juice an author can juice out of a, a right. good oath, right? Because right. it's going to cause conflict. It's going to cause people to uh, go. God, why did I swear this bloody thing? I'm going home, right? And I'm like, no, you can't don't go home. You swore exactly. an oath, you know? Exactly. Which is what the Oathbreakers learned exactly. to their cost. Exactly. <laughs> and they vowed to pursue with vengeance and hatred to the end of the world, Vala, demon, elf, or man as yet unborn, or any creature, great or small, good or evil, that time should bring forth unto the end of days, whoso should hold or take or keep a Silmaril from their possession. Not a uh, narrow oath. <laughs> <laughs> you touched it, and you didn't bring it back to me. You're right. dead, right? Yeah. And and it. I have right after here in the I have the Kindle version pulled up. For so sworn, good or evil, an oath may not be broken, and it shall pursue oath keeper and oath breaker to the world's end. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So either way, you know, you're totally you know why did it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, I think I'll bounce out of here. I hope you guys have a good chapter. I will be eagerly uh, waiting for publication, and so I can listen to the the rest of it. And uh, what are we? What's next, John? So that I can start reading. We got uh, of the Sindar. Let's do that as its own thing. Of the okay. Sindar. Yep. Okay. 
Sounds good. I will get to reading that chapter and I hope you guys have a fun and fruitful conversation. Sounds great. Thanks, See you David. later, David. I hope you feel better and get re-energized. Thanks. All right, Marilyn. David has left us, but uh, we still have our oath to fulfill. And so we will uh, begin Sorry. talking about the chapter here. I don't fulfill oaths, I affirm. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You can be the Galadriel here. I'm going to give a quick synopsis of, I divided this into three parts, so let's talk about each part separately. I think that's the most productive way to do this. The first part goes like this. After the darkening of Valinor, Yavanna determines she can only rekindle the life of the trees with some light, some of the light from them. When the Valar ask Feanor to provide them, he refuses. Meanwhile, Melkor slays Finway and steals the Silmarils from Feanor's horde. Feanor renames Melkor Morgoth and seeks to rouse his people to action. He leads his sons in taking an oath to destroy any being that comes between them and the Silmarils. Notably, Galadriel is present but does not take the oath. So, Marilyn, this is the inciting incident for the entire book now. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. What a uh, what a big moment. We finally got here. Ten, ten episodes in. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's important to establish things like what sort of Valar are there and how right. are they operating. And there's a prior incident which gets this whole thing rolling, which mm-hmm. is the Valar inviting the mm-hmm. Eldar to come over to Valinor in the first place. And the Valar hiding the existence of men from them. Yes. And that is kind of an open question, isn't it? It's never to my mind, really made clear. I think it was just a case of, oh, yeah, there's going to be men. Yeah. Didn't I tell you that? Yeah. No biggie. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. And it wouldn't have been a biggie if Morgoth hadn't picked it up and said, yeah, okay, here's something I can use for my right. own purposes. It, it's a it's a means of implying that you can't trust the Valar because look what they withheld from you. And Morgoth does what any good villain does and makes you see the good guys as gray too. Oh, well, and, not just gray. And, and makes you makes you see them as just as bad as the other side, right? Exactly. Um, it's a tactic we see in politics. It's a tactic we see in the real world all the time. When you can't defend your actions, you throw mud at the other side and sure. you try to make it stick. Sure. Or you start digging ditches underneath their feet. Mm. And I love that line that at first long and hard was his labor at first, but eventually he could sit back and let others do the work for him. For he who sows a crop of lies will never lack of a harvest. Right. I think that was in the last chapter, right? Uh, that we discussed, yeah. which you were there for that one too. We keep having you back because we like having you. <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's a great one. Uh, I think that they, I think Tolkien reuses a similar line in the uh, Alcalabeth. Al- when he's talking about Sauron in Numenor, corrupting yeah. the Numenorians. It's it's yeah. just very easy to take a few lies and and turn them into self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah, I don't know if this was a true with for Catholics during the Tolkien's lifetime, but certainly um, I've heard the the expression of Satan being the father of lies. That's interesting because um, that is the nickname. That's the the uh, epithet for one of the Forsaken in the Wheel of Time, Father of Lies. Very interesting. So it's got a history. <laughs> yep. 
And I don't know if um, if shaitan has the same reputation in, in Muslim tradition or not, but um, yeah, that seems to be, and a lot of resistance to Harry Potter in the early days was, well, he tells lies all the time. This is terrible, you know, evil, blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> you know, my first thought was, well, look at all the quote unquote grownups who've lied to him all his life. Right. You know, there's a right. lot of lying going on around here. <laughs> and, uh, right. Right. I'm not sure why you're you're criticizing so harshly this one child. I mean, he's kind of swimming in lies. He sure is, yeah, and and he doesn't have much room to swim in that cupboard. But uh, here we've got the whole of Ammon, and uh, it's all in the dark now. But you know, something that I I think Feanor has a point on this, and this is another. You know, I think we can see several failings of the Valar here in you know maintaining the moral high ground. Feanor makes a good point. They created a light for their world and not mm. for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why did they do that? Mm-hmm. That's not a good thing to do. That, that was not a, a benevolent thing of the Valar, right? They created this holy light, but it was really for them. And th- sure, they shared it with the elves who wanted to come, but they knew men were coming. They had that problem to solve. They never solved it. Um, any other creatures that were living in Middle Earth had to live in the darkness. It's... um. It's lacking. It's lacking, and it's it's um, it gives Fein or more credibility to say they're not really on our side. Sure, if I remember correctly, after they after Morgoth destroyed the two lamps, the destruction of the land as a whole was so terrible that they decided to withdraw from it altogether mm-hmm. because they had been preparing this place for the coming of the children. It's hard to remember how very little they knew about the children in advance. Right. I.e. virtually nothing. Right. They're, they're going to show up around these times. Right. And we don't know who they are. We have a vague idea of what they look like. Witness Owlite's creation of the dwarves. And they're concerned because of their mistakes. And they don't want to make more mistakes. And so it's almost like we're pulling back because we're so powerful. We don't want to do harm. Now, I could have wished that they had spent more time and energy trying to, you know, rein in Melkor in some mm-hmm. fashion. And heal Middle-earth a little <laughs> bit more. Yeah. And maybe they needed to heal themselves, too, you know, because right. they were expending a lot of energy before. But it is hard to comprehend why, particularly from Yavanna's point of view, because mm-hmm. she'd already set, you know, trees and grass and animals and all this in the world. That, that was her creation. And right. suddenly they don't have... Uh, light right to to grow and and so forth and so that's not surprising that she is one of the two of the valar who are most frequently in middle earth the other being orome mm-hmm. the hunter and of course um you also have ulmo who is present in all the waters and you know really uh knows what's going on where and when um, but yeah it's it's very hard to comprehend that piece of it I think, on the other hand, there is also, as I say, the fact that they knew so little about the children that they were really afraid of doing the wrong thing. And, right. you know, they did it anyway. Yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was an attempt, but it right. wasn't great. Yeah, I think that there are a bunch of missteps here for the Valar that you can just see, you know, um, setting Melkor free at all was probably a mistake, but also it's a tough moral decision. Can you really imprison someone forever if that's not what you said you would do? Yeah. Um, it's tough. Then well, you have uh, the withholding of information. You have the light of the trees being only for a short period. Mm-hmm. You even have the Valar really pressuring 
Feanor to give the Silmarils, whereas yes. if they would have let him, I think they basically treated him as a petulant child right away and made, they, they decided from the moment that they asked him, he's going to say no, um, huh. which, which is much, or, or, or rather than that, they decided he owed it to them rather than graciously asking, we know you made these great things. Will you please be the hero we need right now? Yeah. And and restore the light of the trees. Yeah. They they took away his opportunity to do the right thing and they treated it as an order and a punishment. And only Aule speaks up and says, you don't know what you're asking him. Right. Right. Well, there's also the fact that he pulled a sword on his brother and had been exiled for 12 sure, years. Sure. So his his previous record might lead one to think, OK, this this guy needs some, you know, direction, mm -hmm. perhaps, for lack of a better word. Um, but uh, but also, it's sort of like when you're raising a kid and the kid has acted up. Mm -hmm. The next time the kid has the opportunity to act up, do you treat them like they already did? Because that's yes. that's just teaching them that they're the bad kid it's and that the they they should keep being the bad kid because they're already expected to be the bad kid. Right. If right. you if you say you know that's that's not you you know that that wasn't you and and you're better than that. Mm -hmm. um, that is an opportunity for them to tell that story to themselves, right? You are more than the worst thing you ever did. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing of restorative justice, you know, these are very modern concepts. The idea right. of judgment, and we almost expect judgment and right and wrong. And, and you know, um, we appeal to what we perceive to be the gods or the demiurges mm -hmm. for quote unquote justice. Judgment is a very human concept. It is, you know, a lot of people think it flows from divinity. And my understanding of divinity, um, they're too busy loving us to judge us. We've decided judgment is a thing and what's fair and what's not fair. I mean, it's, it's a very different concept. But mm -hmm. Tolkien was working from a very traditional religious concept, you know, shared by the Abrahamic faiths. So why not? Um and, you know, they responded in kind. I also think of Tolkus, you know, Holky Tolkus, who I always think <laughs> of as, as a sort of an interesting version of Thor, saying, well, who would deny Yavanna? Right, right, right. And it's... so Aule is the one who steps in and says, look, you don't understand what you're asking. Aule, Yavanna's husband comes exactly. in. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and even Yavanna, because Yavanna says before any of this, I can only do this once. Yes. You know, there's some things I even I can only do once. Then Feanor comes in and says, it's the same thing. You're asking me, mm -hmm. you're you're asking me to save her one-time deal with my one-time deal. And then later on, Feanor turns around and makes the same ask of another group, but we haven't gotten there yet. Mm. So it, it seems to be, you know, asks all around. It's the um, cycle of abuse. Right, right. Yeah. And all initiated by this atmosphere of suspicion and mistrust and, and right. so on um, by the father of lies. Right. I mean, look, it, Feanor clearly had a lot of anger issues and clearly was not the, the hero that he needed to be. He was, he was certainly morally gray at best, really more morally on the bad side. I mean, by the time at, I would say at the point of, Refusing the Silmaril, he's morally gray. 
once you get to the kinslaying, he's on the villain side. He's really just going full. It's evil. it's beyond. It's beyond. Yeah. 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 But it's interesting how Tolkien constantly ties in this notion of supreme creator with supreme fall. Mm-hmm. Alle seems to be the only one who escapes that because of his humility. Right. And because his creation comes from a genuine love of creation and the desire to give away what he has created. Right. There is no possessiveness in him. And this is why, for me, the dangers of possessiveness is one of the nine themes of Tolkien. Right. I mean, look um, look how the Silmarils got stolen. They were in a horde. Right. Right. And Fanor became more and more suspicious, but his suspicions were being fed mm-hmm. by other factors. Um, but again, the loss that he experienced very early on um, did not give him a very solid basis for trust, I don't think. And then you right. have the whole discussion of was it right for his father to marry or not? And we you know, don't need to litigate that again. And you did it in an earlier chapter anyway. But that is another piece that has an ongoing impact on him and his character. But then it just does, it dissolves into jealousy and hoarding of his father's love. And, and let, let's say Finway um, bore some responsibility in this too, because he clearly loves Feanor above all yes. his other children. Yes. And makes no bones about it. And so there's, there's some responsibility there. Right. Which doesn't mean any of them deserve to be killed. But what I loved, there was another line in this chapter that I really, really liked, which was I can't find it in the Kindle that version that I'm looking at. But this idea of Feanor absolutely hated Melkor. Yes. Renames him Morgoth. But the words he says are straight from Melkor's mouth. Yes. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. The, the, we, we absolutely cannot see ourselves in those who we fear and despise. Right. Meanwhile, Melkor has so much influence over Feanor. It's insane. He's Feanor is probably the most influenced elf by Melkor. And he's the one yeah. who hates him the most. He's the one who gives him his curse name. Definitely. Because he's, he's the only one who's of any importance to Melkor. Melkor doesn't right. waste his time with anything lesser. Why right. should he? That's why he completely ignores the Telari. Right. And doesn't even try to sow any lies or suspicion in them. And of course, the Vanyar are beyond him because their whole thing is they are seated um, at the center of, for lack of a better word, divinity, although I don't like to use that because they are not gods. We have Mm -hmm. to keep reminding ourselves of that. They are created beings themselves and therefore they are flawed and they make mistakes and they don't have full knowledge. Right. That we usually associate with the deity. Marilyn, did you ever watch Doctor Who, the newer Who? I watched some. I didn't, I kept trying and I kept not getting beyond um, Rose's companion. I don't think I even finished that arc. Did you ever see River Song saying spoilers every time she's asked a question about the future? No, I didn't get to River Song, unfortunately. Well, I would recommend it, but I know my, my point is, I think that Manway, not Manway, uh, Mandos mm-hmm. is River Song going spoilers in the background of every scene. <laughs> Feanor goes, if you're going to kill me, I'll be the first 
yeah. blood and and uh yeah. mandos is in the background going not the first, not the first. and they're all like wait what what what'd oh, you say buddy huh? <laughs> <laughs> although i'm not sure how many people actually heard him say that to be perfectly honest oh okay okay i misread that then i thought that i thought that he's in the background just going like eh, not the first you know <laughs> well he is but i think everybody's too focused on the drama fair enough Fair enough. And maybe and, that's uh, maybe it's a sort of a Melian thing, you know. Nobody ever listens to Melian, even though she knows stuff, right? And so here's right. Mandos, and uh, he only talks to the Valar when he's asked to, right? Um, and nobody asked him at that point, but he said that very thing when the Valar decided to invite, quote unquote, right, the children to come over in the first place. He says, hey, that's not a great idea. There. So it is doomed. <laughs> You know, right. You want to talk about oaths and doom and all that. Um, right. That really was where it all started. So the, the Valar, you know, under the guise of, I think, I think in their, in their minds, they believe we are inviting the elves here to protect them. And I yes. think the intention was good. It but was. But in the end, it was really an act of hoarding. You are hoarding the people there. You are keeping exactly. them under your wing. And that's where the danger came in. They looked upon them and they loved them because they were other. That's not an exact quote, but it does say when they're describing the decision point, they were worried for their safety and they were enamored of them and wanted to see more of them. And this was the first new thing that they themselves had no hand in creating. And they loved that. They were attracted to that. They wanted to know more without ever considering is this going to be the best thing for them? Right. You know, just because you find a wounded bird, is it really the best thing to bring it into your house and so forth? No, it isn't. You go to an expert. You find a wildlife restorative area in your neighborhood, hopefully, and people who know what they're doing. Right. But, you know, they didn't get a parental manual either, did they, the Valar? No. No, they, they, were they make their own mistakes. Fully created from the beginning. They had no experience of stages of childhood and teenagerhood and adulthood and all the rest of it. So they were all right. learning by doing. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, as a parent myself, I mean, sometimes a situation presents itself and I'm like, I don't know. I'm still figuring it out for myself. You know, it's, it's <laughs> and I think exactly. that's, that's part of the Valar. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, why don't we talk about Melkor and Ungoliant for a bit? Oh, yes. Melkor and Ungoliant have a debrief where she demands payment for her services. Melkor pays her all the jewels he took from Feanor, but withholds the Silmarils. Ungoliant attacks Melkor, but his Balrogs arrive to fight her off and send her toward Gorgoroth. Melkor then raises Thangaradrim and builds his fortress, Engband. He sets the Silmarils in his crown. Can I say, Thangaradrim is my favorite word in the entire Legendarium. It's a great word, isn't it? It's fun to say. It, yeah, it feels good in the mouth. Yeah, yeah. It's really chew on it. It sticks to the top of your, your the roof of your mouth, you know? It's like peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> Melkor and a castle of peanut butter. Interesting, interesting image. I mean, a lot of people get stuck in the prisons there. That is true. But I hope they don't stick to the roof of their mouth because, you know, that, that would be even worse. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe not. So Angolian, still hungry after all that light. Yeah, I mean, she's kind of an image of insatiable female, isn't she? 
I mean, it, it, it's sad to say, but uh, when you yeah. consider there's so few women and female characters right, right. in the first place, and both the spiders are female spiders. Right. Do you believe, Tolkien, that he wasn't um, influenced by the spider that bit him? No. I'm sure he believed it. I'm sure he yeah. believed it himself, and he's always helping spiders out of the bath carefully and putting them out in the garden or whatever. Yeah. Yep. It was a very early trauma of shock and horror and overwhelming whatever. And as a three-year-old, two-year-old, I can't remember exactly how old he was. Um, he does. He did have a memory of running through the garden on a very hot day. Right. Um, so I have a hard time believing that that didn't affect him. It, it could have been unconscious, fashion. and that's fine. Um, I, I, I believe I agree with you, Marilyn. I think he absolutely was influenced in it. Why else do you have not one but two giant spider monster women who are insatiably hungry, and all they want to do is to eat all the light and anything else that comes their way. Plus, she gives birth to a whole bunch of additional spiders, which mm-hmm. are part of the madness of the Nangorthe between um, yep. the northernmost and then um, the, the kingdom of Fingal and Malion. So that's where Baron has to travel and somehow survive. Right, right. Yeah, there's not a lot about this scene. There's really not a lot of lesson here, I don't think. Um, the the biggest thing, I think, is just that the Silmarils, even in a container, are burning mm. Morgoth because mm-hmm. he's just mm-hmm. so dark and they're just so light. Well, and a lot of people try to point to this and say, see, see, Balrogs did fly. And because they had to go so fast. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. They're Maiar. You know, yeah. they can travel fast when they have to. No yep. wings needed. Yep, yep. <laughs> Is Ungoliant Amaya, do we think? The implication is that she came out of the darkness independently of Like out of Amaya. the bleed? Yeah, yeah. Okay. She was sort of this this clot of, of... Is she an embodiment of the void? Did Melkor take void? him back with her? <clears throat> well, some, take her back with him? <laughs> some people um, say that, you know... It, she was sort of a detritus from Melkor's evil thoughts when they were singing with a song. And, mm. and so that's part of it too. But uh, um, clearly they're not exactly connected to one another. Right. Because he has to right. go and convince her and she winds up almost eating him. And, you know, yeah. it, it was, as they say in the PPP, it was a horrible first date. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? what is the reality? You know, they do the... Um, the Marvel What If series, right? Okay. What if Ungoliant successfully consumes Melkor here? Does she become the Dark Queen of Middle Earth? She doesn't care. She does not care. All she wants to do is to consume. So does she just eat the whole planet? Well, yeah, because at the end, the theory is she eats herself. Right. In her extreme hunger. Mm. So if, if you've got that whole planet... and. You know, light in particular, she wants to eat, but she'll eat whatever else is around, presumably. Right. Because there wasn't a lot of light in Nangorthe. My what if is, what if she'd eaten the Silmarils? I think that would have imploded her. I think so, too. And that was what Yavanna feared most, was that they would have been utterly consumed and destroyed. Yeah. But I think they probably would have, you know, basically powered their way out of her body by sheer Mm -hmm. force of, of, you know light energy yeah either that or i think they'd negate each other this is the other possibility Mm, yeah yeah 
you know, well, I think if she had tried, she would have bit off more than she could chew, yeah. so to speak. Melkor is biting off more than he can chew, though. He's he's putting it in a crown um, so he could avoid being co- constantly burned. I don't think it fully works, though, right? They'd always It's always bothering him a bit. Well, it's a very heavy crown, and he never takes it off, and even in sleep, and it's it's a weight and a burden. But it's a symbol mm-hmm. for him. This is this is his way of saying to all of his minions who already knew this anyway, you know, I'm, I'm big, bad, and powerful because I stole these precious things away. But they certainly don't give him joy. I mean, he wouldn't know joy if it bit him on the butt. Right, right. So his notion is to be king of the world, but he never leaves Angband ever again, except twice. Hmm. When, and once, I think, before this happened, but the other time was when um, he was challenged to single combat. And I'm pretty sure it was Fingolven. Please don't at me if I'm wrong. I believe you're right. Um, but I think I think it was Fingolven. I don't have the text in front of me. And that single was not combat, he gets injured <clears throat> and he never forgives him. Right, right. Yep. Well, and interestingly enough, even Melkor could not stand the notion of being called coward and not coming out to prove otherwise. Right. Partially because he knew if he did, he would lose a lot of his allies, as it were. All right, so let's go back to Ammon. Marilyn, you've told me that you brought the text of the oath from Morgoth's Ring, which is one of the volumes of History of Middle-Earth. Yes. Is that right? Would you like to read it for us? I would love to read it. Disclaimer, this is not a real oath, and Marilyn is not beholden to it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, this is not... Myself, this is me reading the words of Feanor. Be he foe or friend, be he foul or clean, brood of Morgoth or bright Valar, Elda or Maya or aftercomer, man yet unborn upon Middle-earth, neither law nor love nor league of swords, dread nor danger nor doom itself shall defend him from Feanor and Feanor's kin, whoso hideth, or hoardeth, or hand hand taketh, finding keepeth, or afar casteth, a Silmaril. This swear we all, death we will deal him ere day's ending, woe unto the world's end, our word hear thou, Eru all father, to the everlasting darkness doom us, if our deed faileth. On the holy mountain, hear in witness, and our vow remember, Manue and Varda. I'd say he's serious. I think so. <laughs> there, there's more than a touch of the Anglo-Saxon here. Mm-hmm. If you notice uh, the alliteration, there's a lot of the, the multiple um, mm-hmm. dread, nor danger, nor doom itself. You know, that, that yeah, kind that's of super feel. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, um, very he's rhythmic. called Eru Allfather, which is just a translation of Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. And Allfather was the Norse name for Odin, for Odin. Right, right. So this is clearly from an earlier phase that Tolkien had. And I really wonder if Christopher decided not to include the entire text because it was so clearly from an earlier time than... Mm the subsequent um, rewritings and reworkings and new ideas and so forth that Tolkien himself had done as he continued to rework the Silmarillion throughout the rest of his life. Right. But I'm glad that he did publish it in Morgoth's Ring because it, um, 
whoever whoever you know summarized it as it were in the text of the Silmarillion, it still loses some of the impact. I think. Yeah, I think this would have fit right in. I don't think that this would have taken away from it at all. I think it would have added. But yeah. we're not Christopher, and we're not uh, Guy Gabriel K. Yeah, but again, I think of Elrond warning Gimli against you know mm-hmm. swearing of oaths can strengthen quaking heart according to Gimli and according right. to Elrond or break it. Yeah, yeah. Can I tell you a fun fact I learned recently about uh, the Fellowship scenes in the in the Fellowship of the Ring movie? Please do. They apparently wrote all of Sean Bean's lines the night before, which is why he's looking down for the entire council. Yes, yes. I, I saw this that. interview recently and I was like, what? That's insane. Anyway, I needed has- to share that for our listeners too. He had the scraps of paper on the inside of his shield, right? <laughs> taped to his knee, and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's shading his hand. You know, one does not simply walk into Mordor. I know it seems like he's because being he so can't brooding. see his line. <laughs> he's brooding. He doesn't want to make eye contact with Aragorn. All these things, but then you find out they just didn't write the guy's lines until the night before. Yeah, I mean, talk about seat of the pants and right. <laughs> Both trusting but imposing rather heavily upon your actors. I mean, right. come on. Right. Well, he did and a great job. So good good job, Sean Bean. He absolutely did. But then subsequently, um, blanking on the name of the actor who does Aomer, uh, Carl. Carl something or other. Um, yes. Sorry, listeners. You all He's know who I mean. He's in The Boys, too, which, Marilyn, I do not recommend you watch. <laughs> It's very, very violent. And I know you always ask me on shows, is it yes, going to be a lot yes, of gore? Do not watch violence. the boys. <laughs> well, I also really enjoyed him in uh, Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok. It was it was a very different kind of a character. He's a great actor. Carl Urban. That's Urban. His name. Thank yeah. you, Urban. He he does manage a wide range of roles. Anyway, he talked about, you know, he'd come on set in the morning and get ready to deliver his lines. And the guy said, oh, here, we got some new lines for you. You got 20 minutes <laughs> to memorize yeah, them. Crazy. Figure out how you want to present them, et cetera, et cetera. All right. That's tough. They all did really well. Well, Feanor had some lines to deliver, and he didn't need any rehearsal because they came from the heart. They sure did. Anyway, so let's go back to Ammon with that in mind. Mm -hmm. On Ammon, Feanor seeks transport to Middle-earth and asks the Teleri for their ships. When they refuse, Feanor leads the first killing of Elf by Elf to take the ships by force. The Noldor are warned of the consequences of their actions, causing Finarfin to return, but Feanor presses on to Middle-earth, burning the ships behind him so Fingolfin cannot follow. Fingolfin leads his group across the frozen bridge Helcaraxe, uh, arriving in Middle-earth later. So this is what we saw in the Rings of Power. If, if, you're, if you're at home and you're lost with us now, for some reason, <laughs> uh, this is the intro to Rings of Power. Yes. Yes. We saw Galadriel and, and her crew crossing that ice bridge, um, which seems to be pretty modeled after the Bering Strait as far as real world history. Pretty much, yes, pretty much. Although it's a little odd because, of course, then that means that Middle Earth is actually North America, and I don't think he meant that. <laughs> no, no. Or, sure or he is it? Or is, oh, I guess, yeah, because the Bering Strait was going that way. Um, or yep. are they going the other direction, though? Are they going to Europe from... Uh, from Ammon, North America. We're huh. living in the Holy Land right now, Marilyn. We didn't even know it. <laughs> we didn't know. So that makes me think of Doggerland, which was that whole vast plain that 
is now the Netherlands, but also a whole bunch of the North Sea and other areas that at a certain period of time was completely dry land and you could literally walk across mm. from what we now wow. call England to what we now call Germany or something. Wow. Yeah. The earth changes, you know, it just goes very slowly. And so does Arda, but less slowly because, I don't know, the gods keep doing some nonsense to, to the world and changing it. <laughs> yeah, Melkor doesn't help. Right. But they do seem to be into uh, making and remaking. So we've got this ask of the Teleri, and I like this exchange where Feanor says, well, we helped you when you needed help. It's <laughs> like, yeah, but you didn't teach us to build these ships. This was all the Valar, as far as who taught us. And we're, we're still tight with them. We're not, we know that you're not really on their good side. Uh, you know, your friends say a lot about you, Feanor, and sorry, but you're not <laughs> our friend right now. Well, and friends can can upbraid friends, can can criticize them. And right. it's part of friendship to say, look, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. What do you think you're doing? Just just calm down a minute and think about what you're saying. Right. I don't even know if they knew about the oath at that point, but still, um, as your friends, we can say to you, don't do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will say... It's not very. It's not a very good look of the Valar to be essentially keeping them in captivity and saying you can't go back to Middle Earth, the land that was made for you. That's but, not a great look on them. But they don't say that until after Feanor has done all the things that he does. Sure, they but never they, told them you can't go back. Right, but they they don't want them to go back. Right, like they do not want the Noldor to leave Ammon. They're worried about what might happen to them. But sure. they did not in any way constrain them mm-hmm. until after Feanor does these things. On Feanor alone is my judgment placed, mm-hmm. Manwe says at one point. And actually the Valar are a little hurt that they're being accused of something that they don't perceive themselves as ever having done, mm. which is to constrain them. Mm. You know, and the whole thing about thralls, I mean, that's just absurd. Oh, that's absurd, yeah. Yeah. I will say though, like if you if you got these people here to help them ostensibly and you had to make an island to bring them over uh it took an act of divine intervention to bring them over would be nice to give them an uber home you know if they if they decide i'm not feeling this i want to go home maybe you say to them look get a cooling off period wait a week if you still want to go we'll we'll Mm -hmm. shuttle you back Mm -hmm. i think that would have been fair but the whole vibe was just aggressive at this point and part of it is the oath right i mean yeah. You can't you can't yell at your Uber driver and expect them to take you home. <laughs> yeah, it, it it again, I just have to point back to Melkor. He is the responsible agent until he started talking about thralls, which nobody had ever heard of before. Mm-hmm. They had no concept of being limited or restricted. Right. With the possible yeah. exception of Fëanor again because Fëanor. But for the most part and you know, within his own people there were plenty of people criticizing him and saying, "Hey, come on, yeah, you know, not just yeah. his his brothers, yeah, and even even Finarfin, right, is like, I'm done with this. You know, yeah, the Golden Finarfin. House of Finarfin is staying in in Ammon. Yeah, although his you know bunch of his children decide to go, mm-hmm. and so there you have sort of a generational split in a way, right? But the thing about the Teleri is that. They didn't listen to the lies of Melkor because he didn't even go to them. He didn't think they were worth his time. Right. At the same time, they are creators 
and they are possessive to some degree of their finest creations. I mean, we have, again, I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, the finest two trees, the finest Silmarils, the finest ships, and they refuse to lend, to give away these things that we have made and we can never make again. You know, we didn't learn the craft from you, but from the Lords of the sea, the timbers we wrought with our own hands and the white sails were woven by our wives and our daughters. Therefore we will neither give them nor sell them for any league or friendship. For I say to you, Fëanor, son of Fëanor, these are to us as are the gems of the Nondor, the work of our hearts, whose like we shall not make again. Mm. So once again, the epitome of a creator. Yeah. And the preciousness thereby. Uh, who knows, under other circumstances, Auli might have said, yeah, sure, take them. Right. But he is the valor of creativity and so forth and has that spirit of generosity, which makes right. up for, for quite a lot. Yeah, um, it's tough. It's tough because the Teleri get a little hoardy here too. I think also though, beyond just the, these are our dearest possessions, it's this is a bad idea. Yeah. This is yeah. really stupid. We don't want to help you do this because we worry about you. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen, and just there's no way this is going to end well. <laughs> and we don't want to enable you. Right. You know? Right. Don't ask me to loan you 10 bucks because I know where it's going to go kind of feeling. Right. So yeah. um, everybody is caught to some degree, except the Vanyar. The Vanyar are just, They're you know, just chilling. They're just monks on a hill. Just they're <laughs> hanging out in, in, you know, the glory of They're listening to Bear McCreary soundtracks and just- <laughs> having a great day yeah so i wonder what they are actually um feeding on once the light of the trees is gone Mm. you know of course there's vardis stars but it's more than that of course they they are the ones of poetry and song and that's why manoi loves them the most because manoi air mental writing poetry stuff that that all kind of ties in together and there's no issue of possessiveness there unless they have copyright, which I don't think they do. Um, but you know, if it's a song or poetry or is your creation, then of course you want to give it away because that's right. Kind of the whole point. Right. It's to spread that joy. And yep. yeah, I mean, it's through Tolkien's whole thing, right? Bilbo, the first thing he says to Frodo, I don't remember if it's the first thing, but one of the first things he's like, yeah, I wrote a new song. I want to hear it. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. It's through the whole Lord of the Rings through, through all of Tolkien's writings. Sure. Sure. Well, um, anything else we want to talk about this? We have the the frozen bridge. Uh, suddenly, they would walk 500 miles and 500 more uh, to mm. be the elves that walked 1,000 miles. <laughs> um, yeah, um, they. it's pretty brutal. And you can see why later Fingolfin's like pretty pissed at the Sons of Feanor. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean... He was only there by virtue of the fact of, wait mm-hmm. for it, an oath he took. Right. Right? right. Half brother in blood, full brother, shall I be to you from now on, and where you go I shall follow. And Feanor says, I hear you. Right. And then so, Feanor betrays him anyway. Right. Right. Um, Pretty crazy, because I, I think Fingolfin would have reluctantly but faithfully followed Feanor. I agree. Because that was that was the kind of person he was. I think also there was some support from his some of his children. Mm-hmm. Fingon, Fingon there was, we go. was big in there. 
Those F and L's. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I got very confused about Fingon versus Finrod for a while, and I finally have them straight after Rings of Power. Good but, for you. Uh, it took a while. It took yeah. a while. <laughs> Definitely. Actually, that was a key feature of the um, the parody I mentioned. The yeah. Simple Silmarillion. Yeah. They they had a lot of fun with the F and L's. <laughs> yeah. I love um I love all the <laughs> the the jokes where they have a, a list of words and they say, tell me, is each one a Tolkien word or an antidepressant? Yes. Yes. I've seen that. I've yeah. seen that. Yeah. It's fun. It's, it's tough. Fun. It's honestly tough. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, it's, it's terrible and you see how this all goes. I can't wait to talk about of the Sindar. I believe that's the chapter where Thingol is talking to all of these, uh, all, took, talking to the house of fin- Fingolfin and going, so what's up with the House of Feanor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might not be that chapter, but I think it is. So come back next month if you want that discussion. <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to point out um, that we do have some gods who act against this, or mm-hmm. demiurges or whatever, uh, that Olway, who was the leader of the Teleri, called upon Ose. But it was not permitted by the Valar that the flight of the Noldor should be hindered by force. So there again, we're not yeah. constraining you. But Uyanin wept for the mariners of the Teleri, and the sea rose in wrath against the slayers, so that many of the ships were wrecked and those in them drowned. Wow. So there is intervention there. And do you remember where we see Uyanin uh, in the Rings of Power? Numenor? Was, that, mm. was there a statue there? Hmm. Mm. In a very interesting location. Where was that? She is in what is now being used as a prison. Oh, wow. Once before had been, the theory is, um, a place where Numenorians who were studying theology, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. and they lived in these little individual cells. And so as the culture changed and suddenly they had a need to lock people up, they said, oh, well, let's use these. We don't have people studying those foul art anymore. Right. Um, Except, except, of course, you got uh, (laughs) uh, Elendil just just rocking it for the whole island, right? He's just really keeping that Elvish going, keeping the the Quendi speech going. Well, and I love that connected with Elendil in the series was the first view we saw of Nienor, that small altar off by the side. Uh, that just absolutely touched my heart. And it's interesting, we don't hear from Nienna no, no. in all of this, except for her weeping over the dead trees. Mm. But in other, in other texts from the histories of Middle-earth, she has a fair bit to say. And of course, we know that she was not in favor of locking up Melkor and she was in favor of releasing him after those three ages and so on and so on. So there's, there is that side of compassion of mercy represented in the Valar. Um, But it doesn't exactly get equal time. We could say. No. And I think the, one of the things that we, you know, we say that the, the, um, Valar and especially Manwe are naive mm-hmm. because they don't understand evil. And his message to Feanor is only against the folly of Feanor shall my counsel be set only. Go not forth, for the hour is evil 
and your road leads to sorrow that you do not foresee. No aid will the Valad lend you in this quest, but neither will they hinder you. For mm. this ye shall know, as ye came hither freely, freely shall ye depart. But thou, Feanor Finway's son, by thine oath are exiled. The lies of Melkor shalt thou unlearn in bitterness. Vala he is, thou sayest, then thou hast sworn in vain. For none of the Valar canst thou overcome, now or ever, within the halls of Ea, not though Eru whom thou namest had made thee thrice greater than thou art. I don't think this is naivete. This is the utter necessity of free will. Mm -hmm. And I think, from my mind, this is the underpinnings of how Ea works. That Eru's plan lack of a better term the music can only come right if everyone's choices are freely made yeah now you could argue feanor's choices were poisoned by the lies of milkor and and also i think that and i pointed this out before but it it really was a near impossibility to get to middle earth right from for a non-deity for a non a non i knew it well, under, it's impossible to get back to Middle Earth. Under other circumstances, they could have taken the ships with the blessing of Teleri. If they mm. were saying, look, we want to go back to Middle Earth. We want to see if there's That's more true. new stuff to That's mine. Um, you know, we feel a commitment to the people we left behind. We want to see how Thingol is doing. You know, there could have been any number of reasons. For Did them they know Thingol return. was around or was he just still MIA? They probably didn't until yeah, they yeah. went back. Yeah. But still, I mean, it yeah. was. They knew they'd left some of their people behind. And right. gosh, maybe I should find out what happened to, you know, great auntie so-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> who just decided her arthritis would let her make... Oh, no, wait, sorry. Elves don't get arthritis. <laughs> but then Feanor's ignorance, but also his prophetic vision, his response is... If Feanor cannot overthrow Morgoth, at least he delays not to assault him and sits not idle in grief. And it may be that Eru has set a fire in me greater than thou knowest. Such hurt at the least will I do to the foe of the Valar that even the mighty in the Ring of Doom shall wonder to hear it. Yea, in the end they shall follow me. Farewell. Now that is prophetic. Because they do follow him in the end. Mm-hmm. Probably not under the circumstances that he envisioned, because by that time he is on his unending stay in, in the halls of Bandos when they finally do follow. Right. But his ignorance is that they're sitting there idle in grief. And we'll hear more about that in the next chapter, I believe. Right. He's making assumptions based on what he sees. But he also, after the, um, we get that incredibly dramatic moment of the doom of Mando's tears unnumbered shall you shed which eventually becomes the name of the, the worst battle of all the battle of unnumbered mm -hmm. tears the near neath or no dead, which exactly. i practiced for months to well be able done. to say on a podcast well done sir bravo but he says therefore i say that we will go on and this doom i add the deeds that we shall do shall be the matter of song until the last days of arda to my mind, this is Tolkien speaking from his World War I experience. That one of the ways to redeem irredeemable loss is to honor them in song. Hmm. And I'm interpreting song loosely here because it, it could sure. be poetry. It could, you know, to, again, 
the act of creating can in some fashion ameliorate all the horror, all the harm, all the loss. And Manoi will address this again in the next um, chapter that you read. And it will, it will talk about how, yeah, they weren't actually sitting there idle. Right. But um, that's just, you know, Feanor's limited vision. But it's interesting as you read through the three great works of the legendarium, Hobbit, uh, Lord of the Rings, and Silmarillion, or whatever order you read them in, time and again you hear characters saying, at least we shall make an end that is worthy of a song. Treebeard right. says it. The Rohirrim say it. You know, it just, it comes up over and over. Denethor does not say it, however, and that kind of is another way of distinguishing Denethor from our right. heroes, as it were. Hmm. So that's also an important thing to keep in mind. Mind you, I'm not sure that I, and I'm a musician and I love singing. I don't know that I agree with Feanor that all of the tragedy and suffering is worth a song <laughs> myself. Right, right. But this is this is the, the northernness coming out again as well as the post-world war one and of course world war two as well right at least experience. you know e even if it was tragic it deserves to be remembered i think is the sentiment exactly exactly right but it starts here or so it seems to i think that's a good note to leave it on marilyn fair enough thank you for for all your contributions today it's always a pleasure to talk tolkien with you oh absolutely. you've been with us since the beginning it's so cool. <laughs> it is. It is. All because of a Barovian. I mean, that that's just amazing. All because we couldn't use Google to look up the word Barovian. <laughs> well, um, it's been a pleasure talking about the Silmarillion with you. We don't have any feedback this week, this month, yes. I guess. Uh, but you can always send that to LOTR at thelorehounds.com. You can go to thelorehounds.com, go to the contact form. Leave us a voicemail even if you want to hear your voice on the pod. We always love doing that. Or yeah. you can head to our Discord server, which is also in the show notes. You can chat with us in real time. Marilyn, you're active on there. I'm pretty active on there. Yep. David's on there. We got a lot of people talking about uh, Tolkien and, and all the other things that we're covering. So uh, speaking of what we're covering, I want to talk about our affiliates quickly. We've got Properly Howard Movie Review. They finished their first season of uh, or their new season of determining whether remakes of movies are better, worse, or on par with the average Ron Howard movie. That is their mm. shtick. And they're having a great time. They yes. are uh, uh, covering, they did Sorcerer, they did Dune, which we were on. They did RoboCop, The Thing. That was a really funny podcast. Episode, <laughs> that one. Yeah. They got a lot of stuff in there. It's really great. And we just announced a collaboration with them. You can find cool. that in the show notes, too. We're going to be covering Severance Season 2 with them. They're currently covering Severance Season 1, so you can get weekly coverage of the first season of Severance now. You can also hear this really fun promo where we discussed whether we'd want to be severed while we're pooping, while we're <laughs> sexing, uh, while we're having sex, and, or while we're eating. And we all had to answer that question, and it got it got pretty funny. It got pretty light. So uh, definitely check that out on the Severance feed. You can find that in the show notes or by looking up Severance, the Lorehounds, and Properly Howard on any podcast platform. Alicia is also back on her Wool Shift Dust feed. She is covering The Fall of the House of Usher, the new really excellent Mike Flanagan show on Netflix. Uh, before this podcast is out, there should be a podcast on our feed where Alicia and I talk about it. 
Um, that's about an hour. And then she's going to have more coverage with, I think her sister is her co-host on that. Cool. So I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. I'm probably going to listen to it uh, before bed tonight. And that's, I'm really excited too, because the series was so good. Uh, Marilyn, it's another one I won't recommend to you because of gore. But <laughs> I was going to say, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, you're really going to use that to fall asleep? There's mm. a lot of gore in it, I'm going to be yeah. honest. But I, it's I really remember well reading done. it. I remember reading Edgar Allan Poe yeah. in, in my high school days. He, the the show really weaves together all of the hits of Poe. It's not just the fall of the House of Usher. Mm. Um, so, it's, so there's a cask of Amontillado there somewhere? There is a cask of Amontillado. Oh, well, okay. Then they're doing their job. Yep. Yep, there sure is. Um, it's actually pretty omnipresent. It's like all over the show. So anyway. And and what do they do with Ravens? You got to watch it, Marilyn, if you want to find out. Um, the, <laughs> there's a character that has, there's a character named Verna, which is a main character who uh-huh. is an anagram for Raven, you know? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. There we go. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, well, protect your eyeballs and keep all the grapes and cherry tomatoes out of the way. There you go. It's very good. It's very, very good. So check that out. I know she's going to be covering Beacon 23, which is another Hugh Howie series, which is coming out on MGM Plus soon. So check that out. Subscribe to that feed in the show notes or wherever you get your podcast. Wool Shift Dust is the name. Also on our feed, we have Loki season two going. I'm actually enjoying it as not really a Marvel fan. So um, definitely check it out. If you're at all into the MCU stuff, it's much better than Secret Invasion was. I promise I did not like Secret Invasion, and I am really liking Loki. And Marilyn, you're on Loki, right? I think it's really well done. I'm I'm enjoying it tremendously. It's not my usual cup of tea. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not comfortable with the whole multiverse. Uh-huh. Now you see it, now you don't flash what's going on. I'm really confused thing. But they have enough through line mm-hmm. to keep me going. Right. And enough little bits and pieces but the production values are superb yes and you know tom hiddleston was not to love he's great (laughs) he's great you got you got plenty of great cast in there owen wilson's there you got you got everybody so check that out um as far as our less regular shows uh we're doing this silmarillion stories we did an earthly episode which should be out before this yeah um we did uh a creator one shot i mean i say we i wasn't on it but david john and alicia did a creator one shot i just recorded an episode of the lorehounds play with brandon we discussed the rpg skyrim which is Mm. uh, a long time coming for us of course we're covering a 12 year old game because what else are we going to (laughs) do and uh yeah we, we just got plenty of stuff going on again it feels like Feels like we've woken up after our our uh, three our triple coverage was kind of putting everything else to the side. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Marilyn, it's always a pleasure talking to you, um, but it's also a pleasure to thank our patrons. Definitely. And they are the ones who keep this podcast going and make sure that we can keep doing fun projects like the Silmarillion Stories podcast. Bravo, and, patrons. Uh, absolutely. So our Patreon lore masters, our top tier patrons, get as part of their benefits a, uh, a shout out every single episode. They are Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter OH, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Duve 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Mua, Andra B, Kwang Yu, Laura G, Dead Eye Jedi, Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub-Zero, and Adrian. Now that I have to take several breaths throughout the <laughs> list, it's a, it's a good feeling. You know, it's really nice to have this long-term support from people and 
thank you to you and all our patrons for helping us uh, get going. Something I didn't mention, we just recorded another second breakfast, which was over two hours because that's what we do. Uh-huh. And uh, it was really fun. We talked about The Witch, the, the horror movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about um, Pokemon cards. We talked about some. <laughs> we thought we we went all over the place. You know, we were we were talking about leftovers for breakfast. It's it's always oh, it leftovers. Fun. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. So, and may I say, since this is a Tolkien podcast, to all of the top level, top tier supporters, alaitate, alaitate, eglerio. That's from the field of Cromwell. Go look it up. Okay. Well, Marilyn, thanks again for being with us tonight. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope we can have oh. you on again soon. I know we will with Earthsea, but um, yes. I hope hopefully we can have you on another Tolkien one soon. Anytime. It's a delight. I really enjoy it. All right. Have a good night. And you. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening.